today's guest, Daniel Vonier. Daniel is a proven expert on the future of work, independent leadership consultant, HR organizational consultant, systematic coach, author and guest lecturer at various universities and wrote a book called Unlearning Hierarchy. Through his intense experience at companies like Siemens, Deutsche Telekom and SAP, he brings in-depth experience on organizational transformation to the table and also saw how transformation is being done at scale-ups and more dynamic environments or in traditional environments like the German Mittelstand. His mission is to make work more adaptive, more effective and more meaningful. We talk also about real in-depth personal situations like facing death, the meaningfulness of a healthy, balanced life and how personal life is connected to the workplace, um, especially also in times of crises or when not everything is running that well. So let's dive directly into it. Then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically put it on the table. Hiring takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain situations. It's very, 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 very hard to change things. That was the learning. Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side. Hi, Daniel. What made you the Daniel you are today? Can you maybe start, uh, start talking a bit more about uh, what shaped you most? Hey, Thomas. Yeah, um, probably it's, it's two major events in, in my life. Well, sometimes it's events, sometimes it's processes, but I think um, reflecting a bit on this, it would be two, two events. Um, one event was that uh, when my parents got divorced, uh, my mom actually, um, well, flew, uh, flew, if you will, uh, very spontaneously or intuitively, if you will, um, to Argentina, uh, where uh, we as kids spent two years um, together with my mother. And um, I was about six or seven. And um, as a kid, this was like super adventurous. Um, although, of course, it also had elements of, you know, being kind of cut off of your friends network and your, your, um, your relatives net network here in, in Germany, being quite far away in, in Argentina. Um, it was probably when looking backwards, one of the defining moments um, in my life that helped me to understand that you can only like reflect what you have, reflect what you are, reflect what you're doing. Um, if you're taking a different perspective, if you're changing your personal context, because where we went to, nobody knew me and, and I didn't know anyone. Right. So I had to start um, from scratch, uh, making friends, um, showing my German um, soccer skills, um, <laughs> which which probably helped me, but also um, um, brought me into some some struggles. So, um, you know, as a kid, you naturally don't realize this, but um, today or already many, many years before. Um, Did you also speak the language? No, I didn't. I didn't. And I didn't speak English. Um, so um, the second fascinating thing about like, well, next to changing your, your entire setting and, and probably, well, asking yourself about who you are uh, was that um, you are just, you know, being thrown into a new context with uh, a totally new language. And the fascinating thing is that um, as a kid, the speed of uh, acquiring that knowledge is um, is, is grand. Yeah? So I, you know, for me, the the, the, the most um, insightful event was, um, you know, I had French in school, French um, major, and I really spoke French quite fluently. But now after school, um, I never practiced French because, well, I was a 
probably here and there I was on vacation in France, but I didn't speak it, right? So today, if you um, kind of want to wanna have a conversation with me in French, I won't be able to. If the two of us would have a conversation in Spanish, I would perfectly be able to do so, right? Of course, I would not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so th this is th this is the fascinating thing that showed me that, you know, how you learn things um, has a lot to do with where you're gonna um, store um, this knowledge and how you can apply this knowledge. Um, and without this, this recognition back then today, um, it shapes a lot um, of, of my work on, on how to actually you know, design learning, um, design um, personal leadership development. So this was a pretty fascinating insight back then. How, how did you discover um, the whole learning development area? <laughs> uh, this, discover would probably be a, a quite proactive word for something that, that kind of landed on my table one day, right? So I, um, I started uh, quite classically um, after studying economics. Um, I went into business consulting, management consulting, because uh, it was so, quite but, but this was then again in Germany or did you yeah this was in again in Germany yeah so I spent two years in Argentina from seven to ninth then went back to Germany uh, went to secondary school and after secondary school uh, did my did my um, economics um, um, graduation um, and then um, I went to do business consulting uh, and after and still playing football still playing soccer a bit uh, yeah uh, less and, and less professional but, but still try <laughs> to do so um, <laughs> with, with less stamina than, than the years before but still did that um, so so this was this was fun um, but the management consulting piece right after three years I kind of thought well great tools great methods um, a good approach of, of thinking critical thinking um, and, and analytical thinking I wasn't pretty sure of how to of whether I should continue this and then um, I got in uh, in, in conversation with a friend who was into leadership development and um, after a little excursion into getting self-employed in, in a food startup um, I actually went back to corporate world but then in a totally different function namely in an in an, an L&D function and this was so to say the inception of my um, my L&D career and, and professional itinerary where I still uh, am today and 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 which is uh, become front and center of, of my whole professional life oh and this was the the start at Siemens back then when you were um, exactly. leading yeah. learning and development. Yeah. Precisely, yeah, yeah, wow. precisely. Yeah. So these were my, my first years. I got engaged in, in uh, executive development, which, so to say, I, I knew and, and I had um, relationships with the top management through my consulting years, right? Uh, but this was a totally different topic because out of a sudden I wasn't talking to them about um, strategy, um, about uh, finance sheets. I was talking to them about their professional and, and sometimes also very personal development, right? So a totally different um, kind of conversation, a totally different interaction with those people. Um, and I learned it from scratch, right? So um, today I would consider myself as a hobby psychologist because I never studied psychology, uh, but I read um, very hungrily in, into those uh, things um, because um, they fascinated me a lot. And, and it fascinated me to understand how people work, why do people behave the way they behave, and then bringing this to the, to the uh, let's say, higher level. Why do systems work as they work, right? Mm. Um, and I haven't found like final answers to all questions, but I certainly got a hunch of, of some of the things that happen, especially in, 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 in bigger systems like organizations uh, and, and, and companies. For me, that makes sense because I know that Siemens is also mainly hiring leaders for them through internal development and internal mobility. I think for them, it's harder to just get 
the number of people into the organization, but once they're in, they usually stay very long, don't they? That's you true. Could also, you, you could yeah. spend your whole life at Siemens. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what you can uh, do in, in all corp or in many corporations, um, uh, unless they, they don't exist anymore. And we all know the half-life time of, of, of SAP 500 companies has <laughs> decreased radically over the last few years. But yeah, in theory, you can, and in practice, many people do, right? Uh, with all pros and cons, because um, of course, if you're part of a system for many, many years, um, you kind of go back to the effect that I was describing it in my um, initial childhood experience that you don't, you, know, you, you don't reflect upon yourself. You don't reflect upon the system. There are some things that are just there. That's the narrative that we're sharing, the convictions that we're sharing, the way we do things here, aka culture, right? All these kind of things. So um, it has pros and cons. Um, and I think personally, um, I always appreciate very much the, the, the inside uh, focus of people and the experience in companies. But bringing this in co-creation, collaboration with people from a, with a fresh perspective from outside and then creating um, great stuff uh, together, I think this is for me uh, a golden recipe um, for, for success. Yes, and, and I think also not easy to accomplish because different cultures, different age groups, different tenures, different generations. Very true. Yeah, very true. I mean, especially in a company with Siemens, right? I mean, there are probably companies like, like, like SAP they are hiring, uh, you know, that, um, um, you know, at times they are hiring mainly um, academics, right? Um, in a company with Siemens, you have um, all kind of, of, um, of representation from the entire society, right? Yes, you have academics, yes, you have top management, but you have people on the shop floor that are, of course, um, uh, crucial to the success of the company, right? And so um, looking into people development or organizational development in an aspect of, um, you know, trying to um, accomplish everything with a one-size-fits-all approach that doesn't work right and, and that became very much or, or very uh, very early in my career that became very clear that you have to have of course certain principles that people need to have an alignment on you have to have a certain uh, probably set of values that you all stand behind and, and are translated into your behavior but when it comes to to development when it comes to training when it comes to qualification um, it depends very much on where you are in the organization where you are in the world in terms of regional um, footprint, where you are in your personal um, uh, career and, and uh, professional trajectory. So all these kind of things, of course, make it sometimes difficult or stand in tension um, with the, um, well, certainly understandable um, drive for standardization and, and scalability, right? So this is always a, a tension field mm -hmm. that I personally and professionally was always engaged in in trying to get the right balance on, on these things. And how do you build a concept for a big organization that is fulfilling all needs? <laughs> well, that's, uh, you do that uh, between uh, 6 and 7 p.m. on a Friday night, usually. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. I mean, this is, uh, um, of course, not something that, that you're doing alone. Um, you, you need uh, quite, quite many hands on deck um, to get this accomplished. And, and it's a process, right? You don't do this once and then it's done. Because um, for me, um, I, I keep on saying transformation is a journey without a destination. So if people say, okay, so we have now a one year transformation journey and then we're done, um, <laughs> I'm always laughing, right? Because I'm saying, well, then you probably accomplished a next step in your process, but you will never be done because the world is never done. You are never done. Things are moving. So do you have to move? So the company has to move and, and develop. Um, and so for me, two things are always uh, very um, elementary. The first thing is, I always start with the, um, the business challenge, the business issue, the pain points that the business has, right? 
um, I'm not, uh, I'm very much convinced that um, HR and, and people in the organization these days shouldn't come from their ivory tower in the sense of, well, we need that process. No, you have to understand what are the challenges of the business and then try to translate them into people and organizational instruments, processes, programs, um, you name it, right? Uh, and then also uh, keep on tracking, tracking progress, tracking an impact. I know, especially with development and learning, sometimes it's not 100% fulfillable to, to, to have a full tracking and, and a full set of metrics. Um, and sometimes it's, it's good, right, not to measure each and everything. But at least if you are on a journey, if you know where you are today, where you want to go, at least this should help you to, to measure progress on that journey. This doesn't mean that you can't, you know, take different um, exits on that journey, take different routes and, 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 and overcome some impasses, but it tells you kind of the direction that, that we should go, uh, go towards, which is also super important uh, for leaders in a company to build this, um, if you will, North Star uh, for the company in order to make clear, although everybody uh, works um, probably more and more autonomous these days, you have a you have a force field, if you will, yeah. right? You have a magnet where everybody is 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 pulled towards. That's super. Can important. you can you give an example where this really failed, and where also failed? where it really yeah and where it really really worked well, and what was the difference? Yeah. Um, great because question. I think also um, you, you saw a lot, yeah. So Siemens, Deutsche Telekom, and SAP, and you were not just um, an individual contributor working within the systems, you were creating all those models and systems for huge organizations. And I think the bigger the organization becomes, the more impact you can get through the things you do. At a smaller organization, it's nice, but <laughs> okay, you don't have so many people, and usually you, you have high impact with just hiring. Yeah. But this changed at some point. <laughs> and um, you also saw very dynamic environments or also more r regular German Mittelstand environments, traditional companies who are just growing regularly, not too much, not too low, reasonable size, where many companies out there are at the same size. And also at here, where we both met, mm -hmm. fast pace, getting things done, and in parallel also building this model. I think we, not, we now need some examples from you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So you asked me about uh, when things didn't go well and, and why they did and, and did not. Um, so what I see as a um, as, as a golden recipe is um, giving so such like you know bigger transformational initiatives uh, and process, giving them time. Because especially if you work for and in a big system. And you said um, in, in some roads that I had in the past, of course, you were not only a contributor, but you were a shaper and you were sometimes also guilty <laughs> on bringing probably things to the wrong direction sometimes, right? Taking them two steps back and, 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 uh, and starting anew. Um, but it takes time, right? Um, if, if you try to rush this process because you say, you know, we have half a year to do this transformation, you're gonna, you, you have an inbuilt failure mechanism from the start, right? Because it just won't work out. Because these things, you know, because you, you're trying, you're trying to change the things, the very me me mechanics um, beyond the surface of the organization. If you're just trying to uh, change some of the, the artifacts that are visible, that are tangible, then of course you can do pretty much in a, in a very short period of time. But if you want to go deep and if you want to have a sustainably uh, impactful transformation in the company, um, then you have to go deep. And this means that you have to change and work with the, the core beliefs, um, the shared belief systems, the cultural aspects uh, on, the very, um, um, on the very bottom of the organization. Um, 
that is, is rooted in, in um, you know, in history, in the legacy of this company, you cannot change this overnight. So this is point number one. If you're trying to do this, and, and, and I've worked for companies where, of course, um, speed was always the name of the game, and, and they also want to have speed in the transformation process, which is totally understandable from their perspective, but it's an organic, highly complex system, and you can take a highly complex system and just try to turn it around overnight. That doesn't work, even, even if I would love to, to see that, right? So um, it worked very well in, in contrast when it was clear that there was a, um, there was a North Star, there was a, a common destination um, in, let's say, one year. And then um, the company worked um, together and co-creatively um, with, with a representation of the organization on getting to the next step and doing experiments in, in you know, doing in, in kind of an, 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 um, uh, in an agile, um, in a design thinking manner in trying to set up experiments, you know, live in the, those experiments, uh, make your own experiences, uh, then go back and uh, do a review ratio and say, okay, probably have to change one or, thing, one or two things or, hey, that worked super well. We now can expand this to the entire organization. Right. So more this incremental, sometimes even this emergent um, um, process is super helpful in, in doing those um, those bigger transformation. The second thing is um, it needs top management, not only uh, approval, it needs top management skin in the game. Who should be involved in these groups and who of the managers should be the one driving this? Yeah. So ideally, as I said, it's um, you get a representation because um, oftentimes who could be in there. Is it also people it's from all levels? Yeah, sure. It should actually. It should, right? Because um, the, the the problem that I've often seen is, um, you know, there are these classical. Let's take a strategy process. The classical strategy process works as follows: the 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 board members, probably some um, representation of L one level, and uh, a few strategy consultants, locking into a room for two weeks. And then they get out of this room, they have a 258 uh, PowerPoint page uh, document. And then they say, well, now we just have to roll it out. But this just have to roll out um, has a wrong mindset behind there because rolling something out to a complex organic organization doesn't work. Right. Mm. And, and we feel that in, in, in the very fabric of our organizations, top down rolling things out just doesn't work. So what you should do from the very beginning try to have a representation of people from different levels, from different functions in there and make in the strategy process, process. Who should be involved in a, in a strategy process? Well, you should, you, you should have, of course, as I said, you need top level representation because if you're doing something in on the bottom of the organization um, and the, 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 the CEO doesn't like it, well, <laughs> it won't, it won't see the light, right? So you need representation from the board. Definitely. Right. You need your strategists. That's why they're there, but then you can take a good representation of people from uh, the innovation space. Um, you should take people from the um, the the, um, the the mechanics room. Uh, let me call it that very neutrally, right? Um, you should have people um, from different countries because um, oftentimes everything is defined on headquarters without realization that the country is totally different, um, and also from the different functions in the organization. Could and, it also be customers? And it could be customers, right? Um, which is usually, of course, sometimes a bit of a subtle process, but um, they. There are very intelligent ways on how to uh, include a customer in that because at the end of the day you don't do a strategy for the sake of the strategy for the sake of the company right you do it because you want to deliver uh, world-class services and products for your customers so uh, certainly a, a very good aspect yeah. 
And how does a, a strategy or the outcome of a strategy then translate into competencies of an organization? Because that's also one, one part. Or how do you look at an organization's capability to execute a strategy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can take two things. You can either do this uh, in a very mechanistic way, which many companies do that, right? So they say, that's our strategy. These are, let's say, our biggest value contribution fields. These are the key competencies that we need on those value competency, uh, on those uh, value creation fields. Now let's check if we have them internally. Theoretically, a very sound... How do you check that? <laughs> yeah, exactly, Thomas. You, you asked the right <laughs> question. So you know that better than I do. Um, people are more keen to share their competencies on, uh, on any social media, on, on LinkedIn or whatever you would call it, uh, rather than showing them internally. So if you don't have the data internally, what would you do? So I'm a big, um, uh, a big proponent of, um, you know, taking up a, a bottom up approach, right? So um, kind of installing something like a marketplace. So you have key strategic projects, initiatives in the company. Uh, and of course, you need leads for those that are highly qualified. But then you kind of do an open marketplace, right? So you um, people could uh, raise their hand and say, I want to contribute, right? And then, of course, you do a check and see what are people's experiences, what have they done in the past, what is their expertise, what is something that they probably don't have today, but um, you're pretty sure that they will learn it in a, in a certain period of time. Again, this, this sounds probably nice. At the end of the day, if you really do that, if you live that, that means that you have to break up your uh, rigid organizational structures because if you as yes. Tom saying well you know I want to contribute to this and you're gonna tell you're super excited you're gonna go to your uh, manager and say hey you know I want to contribute to this project your manager would say well that's nice but you are um, on my on my cost um, center um, uh, my cost center thank you you're my cost center so that won't work if you have a replacement go for it right so this brings us probably a little bit towards one of my key passion topics, which is we have to start creating organizations that are more nimble and flexible. Um, and this is probably, and we can go deeper in, into that, this, this is probably one aspect, one element, one dimension in it um, in order to create a bit more fluidity in those systems and then being very clear on getting the right competences on board. That's, that's interesting. It, you would assume that it's easier to change certain behaviors and systems in a smaller organization or a startup than in a corporate, yeah? I don't agree. It, it's maybe, I would say, le less people involved, but the change is also not always that easy because sometimes there are also these people from the beginning who have very strong beliefs and very strong behaviors towards because we always did it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and. Then you have also people coming in new who then maybe get hired above you or mm -hmm. because they have a certain competency and now because certain things should be done in a certain way. And then it's really tough to bring these people on board or that they accept the certain changes. Mm -hmm. How do you, how, how is it happening in your experience when we now really go into changing these behaviors and being agile as an organization? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that always, if you are more aggressive and if you just take what you want, you'll get it first. But I don't think that that's the right strategy, but it's what I see all the times working in companies to a certain extent. Sure. sure. Can we dive yeah. into this a bit? What are the different styles and what, what did you see? What, what was working, what was not working and, and how organizations tackle this? 
Sure. Yeah, many, many components. I mean, we, we, we could talk for, for hours on this topic alone, but probably a, a few aspects. So um, you talked about this aggressivity, right? And I agree, I've seen this a lot, right? If you have like a strong leader, this can be a CEO, um, this can be people on, on, a, on a very prominent um, leadership level, and they very aggressively push for something, um, they might get it, right? Or the company might, might get to the results very quickly. The key question is how sustainable is this exactly. approach? How sustainable is this behavior? Because, you know, if you're into the short term game and saying, you know, I want to squeeze this lemon because uh, I want to sell it or I want to bring it uh, um, public. Fair. This might be in, in a certain period of time. This might be a good approach. If you're wanna, if you want to build or if you're into into the game of building companies for the longer term, my personal experience is that you should create an environment that helps to sustainably create effective teams, high performing individuals and, and teams in an organization that has a, a common purpose without any moralistic aspects, right? But a common um, a magnetic field, so to say, where they're going all towards. So I, I totally agree with you. For me, this doesn't have to do so much with the size of the company. Mm -hmm. This doesn't even have to do with the legacies or with the years of legacy of a com company. Because uh, some people would say, well, the longer the company is there, the more difficult it is. For me, it has to do with something that I'm always a bit cautious, but I think we can, we can um, talk about that here. Uh, I call it the maturity of companies. And with maturity, you know, I don't have any, um, any intention of um, you know, evaluating a company if it's good or bad or modern or not modern. For me, the, the, the level of maturity just gives me an expression or gives me a language for where is the company actually at at this moment how 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 um, autonomous how autonomous can people take their decisions right how flexible are structures how much is leadership still a hero based position versus a responsibility that people take yeah also how, sometimes an uh, enemy <laughs> sometimes, yeah. um, so all these kind of things so there are multiple dimensions that we would look at um, and i'm always looking at the maturity not to assess a company for the sake of assessing it but for the sake of finding a good starting point and then having a, a joint agreement, a co-creative um, um, approach on where do we actually want to go? Because if a company, you know, is, let's say, on a very low maturity level and their aspiration is to jump uh, a few levels uh, um, on top in the next one or two years, I'm telling them that's not realistic because the system will implode, right? Because people need to step by step by step, try to enhance their maturity and by that elevate the, the organization to a next level. So this is for me a, a very um, crucial aspect or, or perspective that I put on when we're looking on companies. And do you have a rating system for yourself where you say, okay, this is the questions I ask and this is when I see a following behavior, um, then I rate it as immature or mature or mid-mature? No, um, I don't have like a, a rating system. So what I usually do um, that helps very well, um, I'm, I'm taking spiral dynamics, for example, right, as a, um, as, as a basis. Um, and in Spiral Dynamics, it gives you quite good dimensions of the company, right? So your, your leadership, your decision making, uh, the way you build relationships and so on and so forth. And what I'm trying to do is have the, the shapers and decision makers in a room and um, really position them uh, in the space or have them position themselves in the space where they would evaluate themselves on this continuum from, you know, not so mature on the one hand side. So, for example, super um, um, aristocratic, um, super hierarchic, patriarchic um, to 
the other extreme of the continuum super self um, um, self managed and, and and autonomous, right? And so you can kind of play with a few of those continuums, and mm -hmm. then have people position themselves. And then the second question that you would ask them is like, what do you realistically would take as an aspiration where you want to be in one year or in two years, right? And then you have a starting point to 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 kick it off from and say, well, we are here today. We have a kind of an agreement. Tell me why do you think we are here, right? Make this discussable. And then um, have a conversation on why they want to go towards a certain direction and then start thinking about what what this can mean and what are obstacles on the way to getting to this next level and then you're in the in the in the works right uh, in, in the middle of, of what you need to change and, and and try to improve okay so that would also mean that there is no one size fits all maturity model but it also depends really on how how does the company want to operate and how is it operating and what's the as you said north star so in which direction do you want to transform the company is that right mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so well there are maturity models don't get me wrong right there are standard maturity models that, that i'm also using um, but there is no mature there's no one size fits all model that you say everybody needs to develop in that direction right so in my book um there's there's one quote that i'm sometimes i have to laugh about my own quotes that's probably peculiar but, but some people do and the quote is is uh, is is, is is expressing that where uh, you're going to drive trucks or where you're going to pick salad or lettuce, right? Uh, you don't necessarily have to have the full level of, of uh, full autonomy, right? Here, probably a system that has more clarity on the rules and regulations on what is, you know, effective and not um, giving a clear framework to people working in the area is, is super helpful, right? There are super disruptive innovation fields when you try to lead them from a very top down, right? Um, um, an attitude and give them a very small set of, of freedom, well, this um, innovation um, uh, organization will die from the very beginning, right? So you have to have the intelligence as a, as a leader or as a CEO to understand which of my organizational parts should probably be, you know, founded on uh, a high level of, of uh, self-organization, uh, on autonomy, right? On a very, let's say, um, team-based and collective um, leadership leadership uh, approach and which ones probably need more um, directiveness, need more guidance, need more governance, need more clearance, right? And the, the complex thing is that in most organizations, you have both of those um, types of organization, both of those types of people, right? You talk about ambidexterity these days, meaning you have to be very strong on the one hand side in exploiting certain business, you know, that run on efficiency, uh, efficiency metrics, you know, economies of scale um, getting the costs down to the exploitative um, part of your business, where um, that's a, a totally different business model behind, right? You don't have to um, have a profit in your first and second year, but you probably have to be first in the market. You probably have to have the most um, um, the most um, subordinate product in the market, right? And then you're gonna start and, and, and probably one day think about how can you uh, make make uh, a profit out of those businesses. Totally different logics mm -hmm. that play into the way we need those companies. It's certainly a complex. Um, so, for instance, yeah. sales and recruitment could be more okay. You need to deliver on numbers, and there you have maybe a bit of a more narrow, explorative um, approach. But you just need to deliver it to a certain extent. Of course, you you can shape certain things, but let's say the the spike would be on the delivery side, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. on a product development, let's say in a software organization, mm -hmm. you sometimes cannot really quantify, okay, this engineering 
hour is leading to that amount of dollars. Exactly. Yeah. So in a simplified way, you could you could say this, right? There's an argument going on um, these days. So when you look about performance management, when you look about um, variable payment, in many companies that have got rid uh, gotten rid of uh, variable payments because they say, well, let's have you know um, a um, collective payment system, meaning if the company goes north, everybody should um, have access to more <laughs> to more dollars, more euros, right? Everybody should get a, a, a variable, a, a bigger variable aspect of the cake. Um, and if the company goes south, um, again, everybody's on board, right? Then um, the bonus is probably zero one year. Um, most of those companies that have gone this route still have one or two functions and one function is sales where they say well sales we have still a direct one-on-one -on -one impact on the number the quantity of sold units if you will right and the variable payment that you get again here there's some very interesting research going on right now um, on whether there isn't also a um, kind of a crowding out effect even in, in this function and uh, i mean we have seen all those examples of um, you know very aggressive sales guys in the market that took everything it, it, it needed right to get the numbers high but they also uh, were engaged into criminal actions right so um, the question is a little bit on on what you lose and what you win if you got rid of those but um, to come back to your point uh, I certainly think that these are functions that are one is probably more classically led or can be more classically led because the structure is clearer right the the the, the um, the challenge is clearer. You have to sell something to somebody, right? And then you have those more um, innovation-driven uh, fields where the um, the challenge is even not clear, right? We don't even know we're gonna um, um, what we're gonna develop this 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 year, right? We we don't even know what the product at the end would look like. So we have to take a more iterative approach and a more explorative approach. So in this aspect, you're, you're certainly right. You can take this kind of differentiation here. And what is your book about? <laughs> my book, my book, Unlearning Hierarchy, um, Expedition into Self-Organization, um, released last year, um, is actually a book that um, both brings to the surface um, what I have learned and experienced in my 15 years of, of corporate life, like all the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, and the intention of the book and the mission of, of my work as a consultant, as an organizational developer and, and, an, and an impulse speaker is really how can we um, create organizations that are fit to today, to the present, and that are fit for the future? Um, and this can mean a lot of things. For me, it means how can we build an organization that is as adaptive as possible, right? Many of our organizations are built as robust as possible, are built to stay. <laughs> um, we need to build organizations that um, are built um, to adapt, right? And for me, it has two, three dimensions um, that I always look at. So when I think about, um, you know, creating organizations, leadership and work that is um, fit for the presence and the future, um, I try to bring more flexibility and nimbleness into those systems. Point number one. Second, um, I'm looking into how can we create more um, effective and impactful work? How can we create more high um, impact teams? And the third aspect of is of it is um, how can we make those organizations? How can we can we make work and leadership more meaningful? And with meaningful, I clearly don't mean, as I said before, the moralistic aspect of you know we have to change the world necessarily. This can be one aspect, 
But I always try to look at those three things because if you look at a company and say, you know, I want to have a very flexible company, that's nice. And it's always good to have that, right? But that's, uh, that's, that's kind of a given. Now, the question is, how do you get the right people on board? And if you want to have, you know, a high performance, a high performing crowd on, on, uh, on, 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 onto your bus, then you better create an environment where people can be fully effective, where they don't do bullshit work, right? And where they see a meaning in their work. And as I said, the meaning can really be that, um, you know, they're creating a superb product. They are bringing their team to the next level, right? This doesn't always have to mean, oh, well, we are, you know, bringing um, out the best medicine in the world and by that, you know, saving lives. This can be a nice aspect, but not every company has that, um, that foundation, right? To me, that sounds all very, very entrepreneurial. Well, see, Thomas, my view on that is that in a world that we have today, that is um, pretty complex, right? And, and that is uh, a lot of things are not clear. I personally think the only way you as an individual can not only survive, but thrive is if you are more adaptive and bringing this to the organizational levels means that an organization needs to be more adaptive. And for me, if you really bring that down to the very essence, this means a more radical perspective on self-responsibility, right? We can't have a highly adaptive system with just a small fraction of self-responsibility as individuals, as teams, as leaders, right? So um, clearly, yes, if you would say, well, self-responsibility and ownership are two uh, very classic characteristics of entrepreneurs, then certainly without taking um, this word in my mouth, this has to go in, in that direction, right? Yeah, super interesting. And also for personal development, I think that's also something you could just use, right? If you want to just become a better, I don't know, person or improve certain things. I, I could see a analogy for me in my personal mm -hmm. life because I did a lot of sports. Then I had mm -hmm. a time after being a teenager where I dropped many sport um, activities because I was so intense engaged into working. Mm -hmm. And at some point I, I felt like there's something missing and I needed to balance that a bit out a bit. and. Um, find more joy outside of work because I had that so much out of sports and so on. And I, I felt really inflexible that why? Why is this so hard? You, you had the best grade uh, or the, the best time and the best childhood you could ever imagine. Why did you stop investing into that and, and being there a bit more um, flexible with yourself? And also I, I did not at some point see the impact anymore or also it was not meaningful for me to just, for instance, go to the gym. What everybody else was doing, I was never really getting that into my my profile that I would say I'm motivated for it until I started again saying, OK, tennis, I love it. Mm -hmm. And then again, the social aspect with friends. And this was really way more um, for me meaningful to say, OK, work out regularly mm -hmm. because then you can compete with your friends against your friends because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a competitive person. I need that. Yeah? yeah. And at some point, this was for me really meaningful. So consistency no problem nutrition no problem no alcohol no problem mm -hmm. because at some point it just clicked yeah. can you also not translate that into an organization well i mean you, you're talking about habits and, and, and behaviors right um, and probably yeah. a, a personal um, story because you asked me about defining moments here would be my, my as a second one so i had a very severe illness when i was um when i was um, 11 uh, where I nearly died of, uh, actually. So I had a 30% wow. um, risk of, of survival. Uh, and I survived, obviously. That's why we can have this nice podcast today. Um, and um, of course, not rightly after that, because you don't really 
reflect upon it at that age. But very early in, in, in my life, uh, probably at the age of 16 or 17, um, I really focused heavily on the topic of sports, mindfulness, so body, soul, food, nutrition, sleep, all those kind of things. So I'm, um, I, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to those things, right? So I really um, spent quite some time in, in, in um, you know, thinking about not only how long can I live at the end of the day, because yes, you have a certain influence, but not everything is in your hand. Um, um, but you, you can, of course, have an impact. And the question is, how can you create a good um, quality of life and how can you be high performing, right? Because everything that we have talked about since this very point in, in this podcast and, and um, also that is related to my work, you can just forget about all of that if you don't have the energy to do that. If you don't have the energy to engage into good and challenging work, if you don't have the energy into to leading people because um, you don't find your own center, right? You can forget about all of that. So my personal, um, well, uh, focus on, on, on development always starts with how do I get my right energy level, right? Uh, and doing everything that, um, you know, pays into that. Of course, you have weeks where it's easier. Uh, you have weeks where you have to travel a lot, then it gets a bit more difficult. But I really try to have my, my daily rituals. Um, I have uh, my, my, um, my my clear workout, I look into my nutrition. Um, and I'm telling you this, um, because first, it relates to what you were saying. And second, um, I truly think that, um, you know, a company is not just a place uh, to work for, right? A company, uh, and that's also why I think leaders do have a certain um, aspect of care that they um, should should have in their arsenal of, of, of uh, you know, focusing on, on, uh, on leading their people. Because yes, there's high level of self responsibility that needs to be there in the workplace at the end of the day um, you still have to do everything that work becomes more sustainable right it doesn't help to burn out people for a half year project right you have to see that on a sustainable level there i see really that leaders have um, a lot of responsibility to take over and also an organization you know you don't have to offer people necessarily uh, 10 types of vegan food you don't have to necessarily give them a tennis court and so on and so forth right this is something that you could even i would love to have a tennis court. it's nice it's nice Nice, right? But I mean, Thomas, you know it better than I do. That's not why people join companies, no, right? Course, that's, a, that's a hygiene factor, right? Uh, and, and it's a kind of an appreciation. But what I'm saying is, um, you know, we all, a lot of the time that we are awake, we, we work and we work in companies if we are employed or like if you and like you and I, we're self-employed. Um, so the company that you work for has a certain overall humanistic or human responsibility on that. Um, and this has a lot to do with, you know, getting the right behaviors of leaders into the company that they focus on this this care and the self-care um, as well yes I, I agree and linking this back to the whole commercial outcome mm -hmm. um, that an organization can get out of this can, I, can you measure that I, I don't know how, how you could measure that can you link it somehow because I think this would be very valuable do you know about some studies or about some experiences well sure they I think there's more transparency than ever on this, right? I mean, there are clear figures, dollar euro figures on, on what it costs if people show uh, absenteeism, right? On what it, what, 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 what's actually the cost of, uh, of um, you know, one day down because people are, um, are ill, right? Um, and uh, I guess everybody was um, even or became even more aware of those costs when, when the COVID uh, pandemic um, came into play, right? Um, and for example, at, at SAP, where I, where I worked a few years ago, 
we had a, um, a business culture health index, uh, which was part of our engagement survey, where people um, could make a statement about um, you know, how, uh, how healthy they feel on their workplace, how much um, is, is being done um, to keep work sustainable, right, without burning out people. There were a few more questions, and this was all aggregated to an index. And we looked at that index um, every uh, quarter or every half a year, uh, and it helped us to get, you know, a, a clear indication of where we are and whether we need to invest in some sort of interventions um, to improve those things, right? And um, there is a clear return on, 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 uh, on invest these days. It's, it's easier to calculate than ever. Um, it's also easier um, to calculate than ever if you want to find out about, um, you know, how performing are people and how sustainably performing are people. Um, because we know that uh, a person that, you know, is kind of close to personal depression or, um, you know, any, any other psychological um, uh, illnesses that you, you can, you have these days and you talk um, luckily about <clears throat> these days, um, you clearly see that um, the, there's a huge drop in, in their impact. There's a huge drop in the way they can help others in, in, in leading their teams. So I think there's a huge personal radical responsibility component. And when I'm talking about shaping organizations that are future ready, that are presence ready, then one aspect is um, to make them effective. And effective means not for me, you know, um, effective from one day to the other, but effective for the mid and the long run. And this is why there's a huge benefit in investing into this without building a, a tennis court again, right? <laughs> yeah. And as let's say what, what I see at first time leaders or leaders who are maybe leading a team, but are not so seasoned in leadership, but more on the functional expertise side, mm -hmm. what could mm -hmm. you give them as a tip or hint or examples to make sure that they are not burning out their people because they know they can do things better or could do things better. I see this happening a lot. Do you also see that? First question. Second question. Do you have tips mm -hmm. um, what to do about it? Yeah, I see that a lot as well. And, and um, for me, it has also um, to do with their lack of personal reflection because um, there is a huge um, correlation of um, people burning out in their organizations and themselves burning out. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it has, first of all, to do with, with self-care, with a reflection on um, how long can you go uh, on a certain pace. Right. Um, and also, um, you know, working with the team, not, you know, above the team and, you know, just, you know, shooting stuff down downwards and, and um, giving unrealistic timelines to get things back. But, you know, have and if it's just like a, a 20 minute check in with the team, right? Um, I always did that. And, and it's if I could give people or leaders, first time leaders, one one tool, one aspect, it's do a half hour check in with the team, right? You don't have to talk about how is the grandma doing of um, of Tom or Daniel, right? What you want to do is you want to ask people to say, um, how are you here today? Right. Um, what's on your mind? At And what probably keeps you from being high performing this week, right? Probably there are things in their environment that are happening. And you could say, well, you know, I don't look at them. That's their private shit. You can do that. But this private shit is still there and it reflects into the team. It reflects into the work. Mm -hmm. So having a good relationship to people. And I don't talk about friendship. I'm meaning like a, a professional but really close relationship to people and caring about them. You can do this in a very small fraction of time. But this gives you a good indication of where people are. And if you 
you know, kind of sharpen your sensors in the way of, oh, this guy really seems pretty destroyed uh, or distracted um, today. There might be something behind there, right? Probably then you spend another half an hour deep dive talking to this person and see if there's probably something going on that you should know um, without going too much into their private life, but that you should know that hinders them from really performing well, right? And if you have identified this, then jointly discussing about what would help, right? Sometimes it's just a simple thing. I mean, I have sent people home just for one day and I said you know you don't have to even take vacation you go home because today this won't be beneficial for you working in here right you just you know do something go outside do sports um, because it won't be um, beneficial for you not for the team not for me so just come back and, and take this day and sometimes just a single day was so helpful that they went back were super thankful and said you know what it helped me just a single day to reflect upon a few things just to get recharged uh, and then coming back uh, and being really a good good team player um, that needs so trust. it's this proximity to the people it's the trust is the basis for everything anyhow right so you need otherwise to it's trust. not working right no it's not working and i mean great question it leads us probably to well if there is no trust how do you do that right exactly well, you need to start you, you need to you start know what i want to ask them. yeah wow. i can read your mind i can read your mind <laughs> um no it, it, it's a it, it's an it, it's a, an important topic right um so there was uh, I, I don't know whom said that but i think it's it's very intelligent so i didn't said um, it was somebody else certainly um, and, and the same was that um, you're gonna build trust in, in drops and you're gonna lose it in a gallons right and um, this is a good picture for me that it means that building trust is a continuous exercise that you do it's not that you're coming in as a you and say hey guys you can trust me I'm Daniel I'm a nice guy no it doesn't work like that that's not the human logic behind it so you need to open up you need to give a, a bit of yourself you need to show up as a person as a human being you need to also uh, as a leader and this sometimes sounds illogical but you need to show vulnerability so you need to be able to say well you know what this was a wrong decision yesterday right i need to get back because i took a wrong decision the team will really appreciate that a lot because they see there's a human being there's not somebody who tries to emulate some heroic figure right it's one of us still with a different role but one of us um and by that you can really go uh, a long way in, in, in building trust when you just show up yourself, when you share something about yourself, right? And this can even mean that in such a check-in, I mean, you don't want to hear only from the team members, you're going to check in yourself. So sometimes in the morning you said, you know, guys, um, my uh, weekend was super exhaustive because I have my two nieces with me and uh, it was fun, but, you know, I really slept uh, badly. And um, so I really need to uh, onboard a, a bit more slowly today, right? And just saying this, uh, I just displayed that um, I have my issues as well, right? Um, it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't um, keep me from, from working today, but they know probably, oh, Daniel might be, um, uh, might be a bit more um, slow today, or probably it's not the best day to discuss the most critical things with Daniel, right? And so it's in the room, everybody can deal with it, which really means that emotions should be part of the working place, of the workplace, right? And I don't mean mm -hmm. those emotions, I don't, with emotions, I don't mean like shouting, running around, throwing things into the air. That's not emotion. That's unprofessional. It doesn't have to, to be at all existing in the workplace. What I mean with emotions is really saying, see, um, if you ask me how am I doing and I'm saying, well, I'm doing well, that's not emotion, right? Emotion would be, you know, um, I'm a bit anxious uh, about the presentation of the customer today, but the two of us, we're going to rock that. Or, you know, I'm a bit concerned that we took the wrong decision yesterday when it came to hiring XYZ. This is, this is emotions, right? Without over emotion, 
rationalizing a workplace, which you should never do, but emotions are always there if you want it or not. So you'd better make them visible to people so they can work uh, in a team, they can work with you as a leader, and then high performance is certainly way easier to achieve than in this um, you know, hidden space where emotions are just you know, buried down somewhere else. I think Reid Hoffman once mm -hmm. said, the founder of LinkedIn, mm -hmm. trust equals consistency over time. And especially in those hyper growth environment, I think he's in you, you go, you don't have the time to build trust. So you need to assume that the trust is there and just act like the trust is there until it's breaking and it's not there anymore. <laughs> well, I think it's also a, a pragmatic concept on how to approach this can also be dangerous, of course. Yeah. Trust as default setting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And emotions, how, how do you de-emotionalize someone or yourself? That's hard. That's hard. That's true. <laughs> that's true. That's uh, in the very fabric of, of, of our human being. Uh, well, that's true. I can tell you how I'm doing it for myself. So usually if I'm super emotional about something, probably a meeting go, went south or there was like a conflict with a stakeholder um, or, you know, I just, you know, took the wrong decision. I'm, I'm emotional about it. Um, then I usually press the pause button. All right. So um these days in a, a working remotely is of course easier back then you know i went back to my office i just you know had a few deep breaths um, and i was trying to reflect upon that moment i was trying to reflect upon what was going on why was i so triggered on into a certain uh, emotion into a certain behavior uh, and then you know really um, reflect upon that um, and um, for me then you know work on a strategy in order that this doesn't happen but before i even you know turned into this rationalization strategizing i was just appreciating that because i mean you should appreciate your emotions they are there they're part of your yourself the only thing that is so crucial is um, that there is this small moment between the impulse and then the trigger and, and, and the behavior that comes that I think people that have a great communication, that have uh, a good self-responsibility, that are good leaders, in general, make sure that they use this pretty small space in between and kind of de-emotionalize themselves, regulate themselves. That self-regulation is, is the key word here, right? This doesn't mean that you know, you, you're hiding all your emotions, but this means that you find a professional way on how to deal with a certain situation. Because if you're coming, becoming over-emotional, that's mostly not really impactful, positively impactful on, on solving a problem. So I try to find this little space. Uh, sometimes I have even anchors, right? If I know that I'm going to a meeting that is going to be super controversial, um, I use an anchor, I don't know, a pen or something um, that helps me um, to visualize if I'm being triggered. This is the pen that says to me, Daniel, press the internal pause button, breath through, think very deliberately about how you're going to react and then do it. And you can do it in two or three seconds, right? I'm not describing a time span of half an hour. We're just sitting there and say, hey, you know, guys, we can't continue because I'm kind of self-regulating my system here, right? No, no, it, you, you do this very quickly and you and get I think this. Is, and this is also something what can help you not uh, doing it, but then people don't maybe mm -hmm. realizing it because sometimes this can also be passive aggressive. I sometimes see people writing things down and then they're writing down very fast and very, you can see it in the whole emotions and you could see they're writing their anger into the piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, they're poor paper, they're poor paper. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's true. Nice, nice. Okay. So maybe to wrap that up, could mm -hmm. you summarize 
what for you the difference is in working with, for instance, corporates, then this fast scale-ups and also maybe the German Mittelstand? Do you have some, some patterns for us there? Yeah, I, I tried to simplify it a bit, right? And, and um, this is the, you know, the sticker on it, a bit of simplification, right? Because <laughs> as I said before, um, you always have to use that disclaimer because you can't say this is Mittelstand, this is all corporate, this is all scale-up. Yeah. Um, you, you know that as well as I do, right? But yes, there are certain patterns, let's put it that way. A pattern that I'm seeing in very fast-paced, very fast-growing scale-ups is that they have grown up from a startup, obviously, right? Um, they have grown up very quickly most of the time. They have gotten a lot of probably quite some, some money from investors and they need to spend it wisely, but spend it quickly, right? So what they try to do is they try to, you know, they have this, let's get it, let's get shit done, right? Let's fix things immediately. If they're popping up, let's fix it. If a new problem shows up, let's kill it, right? That's their state of mind. And to a certain level, this is fine. But when a company is growing and when they need to think about, well, someday we might also be able to earn a bit of money, right? To, to, to show some profits. Then a company needs to find an elegant and a, and a good way to say, let's not try to, to tackle every problem as it was the first time that this occurs, but let's do some pattern recognition and let's create a minimal set of rules or principles even better, right? Let's, um, establish a minimum set of frame parameters that help us to scale not only quickly but scale efficiently and also profitably right and this turning point is super difficult and it's also difficult for the people in those system because they came with a different mindset they worked for one or two years in this let's get shit done mode and now they have processes right and sometimes they hate processes and this is a very subtle point in time because if you're overdoing it with processes then you're pretty quickly landing in a space where you're not dynamic anymore, where the people that love this high, um, you know, dynamic environments, they're going to leave because it's overstructured, right? Leadership is overstructured. Organizational structure is overdesigned. It's rigid. Rules are rigid. There's a clear set of agreements that need to be taken account. There needs to be a huge alignment process and these kind of things. So this shouldn't happen. But at some point, you need a minimal set of those things to make it a, to, to create some order in those systems. Mm -hmm. In case you did not subscribe to the show and you like it, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Now let's jump to the, to the, the, the multinational corporations, the, 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 the huge, um, companies, the Siemens and SAP, Siemens, SAPs of, of this world. So they, they have the, 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 the mirrored problem, if you will, right? They usually, because they are big already, they have a huge set of mm -hmm. systems, rules, regulations, um, whatever you name it, right? So they are sometimes very overstructured because they're big and the bigger they became, the more uh, people felt that we need to have more rigid processes because we don't trust people uh, so much. We want to, you know, standardize stuff. Okay, good. Now, the issue is that if these companies want to survive on the marketplace, they need to create systems or change their systems and their whole organization system to become uh, more adaptive means getting away from a lot of set of rules to some pretty simple um, principles, right? And looking and analyzing uh, into in the system, where do you have 
um, systems, regulations, processes that are actually blocking points towards a future where you need to be more dynamic, where you need to be more adaptive, right? So having the problem exactly or coming exactly from, from the different sides. Now, German Mittelstand, two sentences on those or the, the hidden champions, right? They have sometimes structures of both of those, right? So you have both things or both challenges in once. Um, what often comes into play is that many of the German um, uh, small and medium-sized companies, they are uh, owner-led. And owner-led can, can have a super beneficial way of steering the company, which means long-term, sustainable, right? Caring, all these kind of, you know, um, traits that you would usually see in a family system, right? They kind of put those um, unconsciously into that system. That's a very positive uh, piece of it. The negative piece of it that sometimes these companies are led very patriarchally, patriarchically, right? So from the one person who found that company, they are still taking each and every substantial decision. What this does to the system, you're creating passive employees, you're creating passive leaders. Everybody upward delegates um, the topics because they kind of operate under the auspices of, you know, uh, an, an operation system that thinks, well, probably, you know, I'm making too much mistakes, so I'm probably not, not taking too many risks. Otherwise, I will be kicked out. So this is um, probably a, a nuance that comes into play with um, those owner-led um, and, and uh, um, um, entrepreneur-led um, um, organizations. And you are a consultant, freelancer, and you also are building something by yourself, which is going beyond that. Can you share a bit more about how can people book you, what you do? Who are the people that should book you or could book you <laughs> and what's next? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, probably uh, a, a quick snapshot on that. So there are a few things that, that I'm doing. Of course, um, I am, um, as I said before, I'm working with companies of all sizes, different industries as an um, organizational development consultant. Um, and I'm accompanying companies, you know, not only um, in, a, in a very short sequence, but sometimes over like a year, half a year, right, um, on those longer um, distance processes. Um, then I'm a leadership um, expert, leadership development expert. So I'm creating um, um, whole leadership architect, leadership development architectures, um, co-designing programs with uh, with my um, with my clients. That's the second piece. The third piece is um, that I um, I also love to bring some impulses, right, from my personal um, uh, life, from my professional uh, life, from my reflections um, that went even deeper by by the book um, I wrote. Um, and try to, you know, make this available to people in, in other companies and ideally combine this also with a, with a nice workshop in, in, while coming into, you know, their own reflection in, 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 in thinking about that, right? And now there's a, a new thing that I can, um, that I can put a little flashlight on it. Um, it's a, um, um, an unlearning hierarchy um, program. It's, uh, it's an, uh, an expedition. We, we, we're going to build it as an expedition. Leonard Kyle and myself, so um, we are both co-authors of the book on learning hierarchy. Um, we got so much positive um, feedback on that. that We said now we need to make it even more practical, right? And make it experiential. So um, what is currently on, on our wireframe is that we're building a highly experiential um, a program, um, an, an, an expedition, um, three times, three modules, a two days um, on a kind of remote place so people can really go into their reflection um, and use kind of, you know, really some sort of a case clinic where people bring in their very specific context, right, to those uh, interventions and then not only work with us, but also with the intelligence of the group, with the, the methods, the experience that 
We give them in really building um, their muscles for becoming shapers and decision makers in the area of, uh, of transformation, cultural transformation, um, and, and um, you know, building those kind of companies and shaping those kind of companies that I'm after, which, you know, to, um, <clears throat> to close that up, these are companies that are, you know, more adaptive, um, companies that, um, you know, are um, effective, companies that are human, um, that show meaning, um, and also companies that are, um, you know, highly flexible and in the marketplace. So this is my mission and I hope that with the lever of, of this program that we're going to launch um, probably Q4 this year, uh, we're going to even expand um, that mission and give more people access um, to that kind of thinking and, and, and working in, in our companies. Sounds like a plan and sounds <laughs> highly relevant. So stay Thank tuned you. for Q1 and Daniel, it was really nice talking to you. Um, uh, nice conversation as always. And thank you for being my guest. Same here, Thomas. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Very much appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the conversation. <laughs>